Hi, Greg. Hello. Hi. Uh, I feel that you don't need an introduction. However, there may be... <laughs> Sorry, that's a terrible way to bring you on. Now I've made you all shy. <laughs> I, I feel that some people may have not heard of you before, which I find unbelievable. Yeah, I'm sure. But it is possible. It is possible. I find it very believable. <laughs> <laughs> so, Greg, please, can you tell me, or don't tell me, tell everyone else a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so I'm Greg. Um, I founded and lead the conversation design practice at Salesforce. Uh, my team and I currently are leading the, the fray with all efforts around large language models and our product called Einstein GPT. Um, we focus very, very strongly on prompt design, prompt engineering, and anything that we're sort of shipping in the product uh, is being driven by by my team and our prompt um, design process. Um, my academic background is in linguistics, so a lot of what you'll hear about uh, in terms of my philosophy and approach to conversation design and conversational interactions is driven by that academic foundation. Um, other fun facts about me, um, I, let's see, enjoy songwriting um so very much into uh the writing of lyrics um occasional with production although i'm not very fond of my own compositions um very big pop music enthusiast so if you hear me make sort of pop culture references here and there that's uh that's also the motivator behind that cool and uh who's your favorite songwriter oh hard question i know hard question we're starting off with a hard question okay um in english <laughs> Um, my favorite songwriter, and I think, so I, I think, like I said, I'm a very big fan of pop music. And so I think mm -hmm. very much about pop sensibilities. Probably my favorite, oh, that's so tough. Because mm -hmm. I like a, a bunch of songwriters for different reasons. But I would say the one who I really am, like, just deeply, deeply impressed by as a pop songwriter is Mariah Carey. Um, I think she doesn't get enough credit for her songwriting skills yeah. and she can put SAT words into pop songs that make the, and make them sound like butter. Like you'd never know that the word disestablishmentarianism fits into a pop song so smoothly <laughs> until she does it. So whenever yeah. I write uh, a song and put a big word in, it, word in it and it sounds good, I'm like, all right, that's for you, Mariah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. She's, um, I mean, I think with all music, you know, it's like, People feel it passionately, so they either love or hate a lot of songwriters. Yes. But she, you know, the fact that she's a great songwriter, and also with that voice, she's got like five octave yes. range or something. It's incredible. Yeah, exactly. It's, and I mean, she obviously gets, you know, the praise that she deserves for her pipes. Um, yeah. And I think that I'd also like to sort of elevate and say, you know, let's give her some praise for her pen too, because everything that she's, she's produced, she's written. So yeah, it's great. Yeah, incredible. And Christmas wouldn't yeah. be the same without that song. It wouldn't. Yeah. Exactly. And how hard is it to write a Christmas song? You know, I mean, Extreme. not often do you know, new Christmas songs get added to the canon like that. So Yeah. Cool. All right. So you, you gave a solid answer to the hardest question. So the rest of this Thanks. is going to be easy. Yes, exactly. And now, now I'm really ready. Cool. Okay. So I'd like to start with a few easy ones. We've actually done one already, but I've got three more prepared, which I would love yeah. to uh, hear, hear your responses to. So are you ready to give yes. me fairly succinct answers to these questions? Yeah. Cool, cool. So please, Greg, what's your favorite bot? And it can be 
any bot from any context. So there's a cartoon from, I want to say the, the late 80s, maybe even early 90s called Outlaw Star. And it's this yeah. sort of space odyssey. Um, and the ship that they fly is essentially sort of managed by this bot called Gilliam. And the reason why I like Gilliam is because Gilliam takes on, it, it's, Gilliam's very multimodal. Mm -hmm. So he takes on different shapes and can maneuver certain things in the ship. Um, and I think it speaks a lot to being able to uh, sort of associate a bot with something physical. So okay. big cool. fan of Gilliam. Excellent. I, I've never seen this, but I'll check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I've been watching Cowboy Bebop recently and I'm getting really very yeah, similar. Yeah. Okay. Cowboy Bebop. Cool. Yeah. Cowboy Bebop is um, like from like a narrative perspective, just much better, okay. um, much tighter. Um, Outlaw Star is very similar in terms of the whole space odyssey theme, but um, the narrative's a little less tight. Okay. Okay. Cool. But yeah, it still sounds totally up my street. So nice one. Yeah. Love okay. it. Cool. And number two, please, Greg, mm -hmm. what is the most useful thing you use at work? And it can be anything. My calendar. Yeah. Hands down my calendar. Um, because I think without it, I would be totally lost. I would miss meetings. I would be late to all my things. I wouldn't really know what's going on. So I think that my calendar is probably the thing I depend on the most to keep me where I'm supposed to be. Okay. And do you use, I guess... Are we talking digital or are you old yes. school? Yeah. Digital because yeah. it changes so quickly that if it were old school, it would just be like a bunch of chicken scratch. Um, and these days meetings will get added to my calendar like 10 or five minutes before or as it's happening yeah. or things will get moved around. So um, definitely Google Calendar to, to my rescue. Okay, cool, cool. Um, I think, yeah, it's basically like, I think for everybody, this is a fundamental now. Like we have to be so tight with our calendar and yeah, always in the background. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, number three, and I really love to hear the various yeah. opinions we get on this. So, <clears throat> you know, we have conversation designers who are, I would say, generally known within the field. And mm -hmm. for me, not to make you blush or anything, but you're absolutely one of those people who I feel is, you know, most people know your name, associate you with, with the field, with great work, with um, mm -hmm. uh, great knowledge sharing. You know, you do wonderful talks and so on. So please, who would you nominate as a conversation designer that we should all know about? Catherine Sadler. So okay. Catherine Sadler is based out of, um, basically the Sydney, Australia, Sydney region of Australia. Um, she was part of my team. I want to say, uh, latter half of last year to the top of this year. And she's okay. hands down one of the most brilliant conversation designers I've ever worked with. Um, very, very strong systems thinker. She has deep, uh, knowledge and expertise in voice and multimodal conversation design. Um, Truly just, I think, uh, a very strong asset to any team. But the thing I appreciate the most about her is her ability to make sense of and very, very um, sort of succinctly um, organize unstructured data. I feel like I could toss her into, you know, those like ball pits 
um, that the kids play around in. I feel like I could mm-hmm. toss her into one of those and she'd have them organized. Like I could walk away for an hour and come back and she'd have them organized into bins and show how all the colors relate to each other and why these balls are here and not there and all this stuff. I mean, she is a very, very impressive systems thinker. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, that's cool. It's super in like, I know that this is supposed to be 30 seconds ago, but I think we could get <laughs> so much mileage out of talking about how systems relate to conversations because, yes. uh, you know, like they are systematic, aren't they? To, mm-hmm. you know, maybe to a high degree, even though often we don't feel that we're being systematic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that as a designer, I feel like systematicity and really consistency is the thing that I'm always advocating and asking for, especially mm-hmm. in, you know, my stakeholders and my my direct reports work is, okay, so have we used this thing everywhere? Have we established it as a pattern? Because it doesn't make sense to use something from scratch every single time, then we lack consistency, it starts to become overly um uh, cumbersome to create a design, and the whole point is to make it easier and more consistent. Um, and that's something that I think Catherine is really great at. Um, and she can articulate her um, her motivations and her reasoning behind why the system is the way it is and why she's organized things the way they are, and then how we extend it going forward um, really, really succinctly. So, a uh, huge fan. Fantastic. Yeah, cool. I mean, that's the thing. If you imagine a wonderful system, but you can't uh, explain to people why it is the way it is, then, yes. you know, it's it's all in your head and someone else yeah. can't, can't continue the great work you've done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Wonderful answers. I'm going to check her out. So Thanks. let's move on to the, the main part. Yeah, please take a drink. You need to be ready. Are you ready? <laughs> yes, I am ready. <clears throat> no pressure. Just kidding. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I, I saw on LinkedIn you made a post a few months mm. ago now, but it absolutely caught my attention because I've been really wanting to get you onto Conversation Squared. I think I even came up to you at a voice in Arlington yeah. last year and said this, but then I saw that and I was like, now's the time. <laughs> so you, you basically, as far as I'm aware, you announced that uh, you've been incorporating large language models into your work mm-hmm. at Salesforce. So yes. please, um, I'd like to speak about that. Uh, but first, maybe just to be a bit more kind of general and ground mm-hmm. us a bit more. Um, uh-huh. when, we're ta- you know, when we're talking about generative conversational AI, yeah. what does that mean to you, please, Greg? Sure. Um, to me, I think conversational, generative conversational AI really speaks to leveraging a large language model to produce the language itself. Um, and for conversation designers, what I think that means is sort of shifting away from maybe the minutia of writing every single letter for every single word that the bot's going to say mm-hmm. and orchestrating this system to do that piece to really produce the language um, and shift more into this um, interaction design uh, power that we have mm-hmm. in terms of guiding and directing um, a large language model to produce the kind of language that we want um, in a uh, systematic way, yeah. consistent way. Okay, excellent, excellent. So you've been doing that. You've been doing 
as far as I gather, a lot of that recently. Yes. Um, yes. So, yeah, at, at Salesforce, uh, how have you been incorporating generative conversational AI and LLMs into your work, into the project? Yeah. Um, so all of Salesforce is really spinning up um, a generative AI solution within uh, each line of business. So our flagship uh, line of business, um, each line of business at Salesforce is called the cloud. So sales yeah. cloud is our line of business for the sales industry, service cloud for the service industry, et cetera. Um, all of the clouds are essentially integrating large language models into their product offering. Um, for sales cloud, what that's looking like right now is how do you leverage a large language model but to potentially help salespeople move faster? Mm-hmm. So produce things like if we're going to generate an email for a salesperson, um, you know, historically they may use something like a template, but templates are very static and they're the same. Um, And maybe not necessarily, you know, it takes the salesperson time to potentially customize a template that they receive from their organization to make it sound a little bit more like them. But even then, it's very unlikely that they have like four or five templates or four or five versions of a single template. And so the beauty of using a large language model is you get that sort of rich variation there um, in a way that, you know, it's almost like a dynamic template that generally there are certain pieces that stay the same. but there's parts that are slightly different, ideally, to the benefit and delight of the recipient of the email. I think of it kind of like a good Final Fantasy game. There are certain aspects that are always the same, no matter what game you play in the series, that make it quintessentially Final Fantasy, but there are all these different things that are, are done by the production team to make it feel different, feel new, feel engaging. Um, same thing with a salesperson, like there's something quintessentially unique about that salesperson and how they communicate and how can we sort of encode that and make it as personalized as possible into what the LLM produces, but then bring that variation to the table. So that way it feels different, um, different enough and engaging for the recipient of that email. Um, for service cloud, it's things like, um, if you have a service agent, um, basically we would pipe that service agent suggested replies that they might send in chat to a customer. Um, That's a product that we already have on the market, but being able to leverage a large language model to generate, again, that like the, the very creative variation that you would, you know, be able to elicit from a large language model with relative ease. Mm -hmm. That's something that we find to be the real strength. um, And we can use that to power our recommended replies um, experience. Um, every cloud is taking a slightly different approach, but I think the sort of fundamental core piece that um, my team is responsible for really is the prompt engineering and prompt design. So every time a user interacts with a large language model that's been integrated in Salesforce, um, my team is responsible for the prompt that lives behind the scenes. So you may have seen in demos um, across popular media and you know in um, you know, in the press, where you could type something like, write me an email to Tim Cookies. Um, a prompt like that will get you something very generic, mm-hmm. um, something very, you know, and again, like I, I, I like to sort of liken large language models to a word calculator. Um, it knows how to predict the likely best next word in a sentence based on the instructions you give it, um, but it doesn't have cognition, so it's not going to know. Um, And unless you tell it, then it's going to just take its best shot 
at write an email to tip cookies. Um, We make sure at Salesforce that we contextualize something like that within a larger context that considers ethical and social scope, conversational style, linguistic variation, (laughs) as well as any kind of um, relevant data that may be uh, includable from your CRM, which is the true power of, you know, using Salesforce with your, with a large language model, that contextual information. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I feel like there's many parts of what you're saying that I would love to ask about. Sure. Um, but it's, you know, as as we've been experimenting with LLMs of UX world, we're really discovering mm-hmm. that the, the expertise, and I, I guess many people are talking about this now, but the expertise in the prompt and how much you can point it in the right direction really pushes it towards the right result. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that that's really where we come back to like what I was saying earlier about um, systematicity and consistency in that, you know, if you have a, if you're, you know, using a different prompt and different prompt structure every single time you invoke the large language model, um, it, you know, it's great for variation. Um, But for, for business and enterprise use cases, that variation introduces a degree of risk. Yeah. And so part of our job on the enterprise side is to think through how can we mitigate that risk? And I think that the biggest design solution for mitigating risk is consistency. If we have established this is a pattern that works for yielding you know, a model output that we consider to be appropriate within um, our guidelines, within best practices um, that adheres to regulatory um, legal uh, needs across the world, then, okay, we need to follow that pattern going forward and then continue to tune that pattern as we get additional feedback. Um, but if, if it's sort of, and I think it's very similar to, you know, conversation design pre-large language models in that, you know, if you don't have a rigorous approach to how you do it, then you're not going to have a rigorous experience. Yeah. 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 And so speaking of that, because what you were describing in terms of Salesforce made Mm -hmm. me imagine your team basically working with huge chunks of a huge organization and helping all of them to implement LLMs in a way that adheres to what you've just described. So can mm-hmm. you tell me a bit about that, like the project itself, how long it took, yeah. and, you know, the scale of it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a project that, um, I mean, it's interesting. My team and I were working with large language models, I want to say, even as early as maybe around this time last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not it wasn't a huge surprise to us that we would be leaning into this world um, once, you know, the new fiscal year started and we announced it as kind of our big focus. Um, I think that, and it's obviously an ongoing project in that, you know, as the models themselves continue to evolve, um, we will need to tune our prompts accordingly. Um, So I think one of my colleagues, um, Fatima Kateblu, brought brought to our team's attention, I want to say yesterday, um, the concept of prompt drift that people were talking about online. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, we are going to have to do that because what prompt drift means is that the prompt itself may become quickly outdated Mm -hmm. because the model itself has evolved, Mm -hmm. even though they haven't released a net new model so like like the difference between gpt 3.5 turbo and gpt4 notwithstanding 3.5 turbo itself may evolve and we need to tune our prompt 
to make sure that it is optimized for what it is now as opposed to what it was in January. Um, And so that's often, I think, one of the biggest things I have to convey to stakeholders is I'm like, you know, with conversational solutions, it's not a set and forget situation. You have to constantly monitor and constantly revise because language evolves. Um, It's something that is not static. Um, I think that in terms of the scale, um, it's still we're still taking a similar approach uh, that we've taken in the past with our our team in that each conversation designer owns a whole line of business and they are seen as the lead and the go-to conversation design and in this case the prompt design person for that entire cloud. Um, some conversation designers own multiple lines of business. Um, some conversation designers own one. Um, but it's the way I've sort of positioned the team is to make sure that each cloud or each line of business has their own sort of point person or their own lead when it comes to the practice and the skill and the craft of conversation design. And we essentially apply that across the entire portfolio. Okay. Yeah. So each conversation designer has huge responsibility for a massive chunk of the business. That's incredible. Yeah. and so, you know, this is a risky undertaking. It's a huge undertaking because what you're saying is you were uh, planning to do this before the whole world went LLM mad, <laughs> before, yeah. before ChatGPT. And so can you tell me, like, um, at that point, what were the benefits that you were uh, envisioning and how close you are towards those, uh, like how... How, how it looks now that you've actually rolled it out in terms of mm-hmm. realizing those benefits? Um, I mean, I think that the way that we had envisioned it in the beginning, I think really was, um, again, like how to help take care of those um, very m- manual time taking tasks that don't necessarily require quite as much of your cognitive faculty um, as something potentially more complex. Mm -hmm. So for example, when I think about sales and generative email, um, I have a friend uh, in the wine industry actually, who is a salesperson and she Mm -hmm. has to burn through thousands of leads a day. She has to cold call thousands of uh, thousands of people to try and figure out, okay, who's potentially willing to buy and how can I convert to a sale? Um, that's exhausting work. Yeah, it's a lot sure. for a salesperson to consider, not because of the cognitive complexity of the task of burning through a list, but because the volume is so huge. Mm-hmm. And so the vision was something like email generation is if you're burning through thousands of leads to try and figure out, you know, what is a quality conversion for a potential sale, being able to generate that content and and keep it as personalized as you can to that individual, as well as to your own individual unique style of communication and conversation, um, that really helps to sort of lessen that cognitive load of having to think through, okay, I've got to switch hats a thousand times uh, to connect with these folks um, and potentially motivate or suss out a sale. And instead of, you know, spending all of that cognitive energy trying to burn through a list, you can spend that cognitive energy really spending time with, you know, the leads who are hot, the ones who are very likely to convert uh, and make it a more personalized sales experience. Um, At Salesforce, we look, we take the approach of sales as relationships that, you know, you're, you're not in it to 
close a deal necessarily. You're in it to build a relationship and the deal is a part of that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that being able to leverage a large language model to sort of take care of that task-oriented work to focus on more of the relationship-oriented work is really the vision that we've been able to execute against. Yeah, excellent, excellent. What, you know, as you're describing this, it's really highlighting to me that we're getting to that point where each person can have their AI assistant that's not just helping them, as in, you know, mm-hmm. the voice assistants, uh, but it's kind of like they're... Uh, like an in-between node between them and the world where they give it a task mm-hmm. and it goes and does stuff yeah. on a massive scale yes. that they simply couldn't do themselves. Right. Yeah, right. this is incredible. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent work. So, <laughs> you know, like this is like everything you've described is kind of like a fundamental change for the conversation designers. You know, as you said, mm-hmm. the the sort of core of the work uh, being consistent, like uh, thinking in these systems, that mm-hmm. doesn't change, but then the actual, the day-to-day practice, it, it, it does look quite different, right? It, as mm-hmm. you said, it's not thinking about each little, uh, you know, every word within the utterance, but it's thinking on mm-hmm. a kind of bigger, more general scale. And, you know, as I like to think of it, more like curating than creating. Yeah. Um, so can you describe the sort of day-to-day work of, of your team, the conversation designers? How... How has their work changed with this? Um, I mean, certainly the deliverables have changed. So, for example, rather than delivering, uh, you know, a an end-to-end flow of an IA and how the we would manually train intents and what messages are going to be sent at what time, and then eventually the actual conversational copy that gets you know deployed in the bot. Now, what we're delivering are prompts and prompt templates um, okay. and so that's, I think, the main change. Um, with that change, I think, comes with a degree of talking about conversational AI in more depth than I think our stakeholders have been used to in the past. Okay. Um, so b- mostly because we have to explain to them, this is why, in doing this, this is what we get from the model. And so here is how we do that and why it happens. Yeah. And that requires a certain level of technical acumen that I think in the past we've been able to kind of shield people from. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the manual part of it makes it easier to focus on, okay, well, it says this word or this, you know, we, we need X many in- <laughs> utterances to train this intent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I think um, it requires each conversation designer to sort of lean a little bit more into that skill of translating the idea from their mind to a stakeholder who maybe is quite unfamiliar with the world of conversational AI. And doing so in a way where they understand what are the decisions that are being made, what are the requirements that are needed technologically in order to facilitate a particular interaction or experience. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of, uh, you know, the main sort of skill shift, um, like I had sort of alluded to earlier, rather than spending, a, a, you know, a decent chunk of time working on the minutia of what exactly the bot is going to say, now that all of that time that was would usually be spent there gets shifted to the interaction design phase of the conversation design process really thinking through who are the participants in this interaction who is the sender who's the recipient how do they orient to this thing that's being produced to the model Um, really leveraging a lot of what we know from sociolinguistics to inform how we position users in space place and time and and 
optimize the model output for where they are and what they need. Yeah. Um, a lot of a lot of that really is your you know sort of pure interaction design, but the 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 realization of it happens in a conversational experience. Yeah, cool, cool. It's a, like it's a wonderful insight what you were saying, where you're finding that they have to spend more time sort of uh, explaining and describing and uh, you know teaching people about the the fundamentals of conversational AI, going deeper with that because. I think a lot of people, you know, when this technology went mainstream, so to speak, they were like, oh, well, mm -hmm. conversation designer is not necessary anymore because, you know, the machine does it for us. And what you're saying is actually even just to use this well, right. we need to be able to show you how, talk to you about, you know, uh, what's actually happening here so that you can use it. Right, exactly. And, and what, how do we, again, like how do we mitigate the risk? around all that variability. There's a lot of power with that, there is. Um, and it's kind of like what I had said, actually, you mentioned voice from last year. It's a kind of a lot like what I said in the talk that I gave there, in that when you're designing generative language experiences, it is a design task. The design piece doesn't just go away because this thing can produce language. Um, the thing, sort of, I think to go back to the calculator metaphor, you know, when we do basic math like addition, subtraction, multiplication, sure, we can do that by hand. Is that the best use of your time when you're in calculus? Sure. No, they hand you a graphic calculator and say, use this for these, you know, basic equations to fry bigger fish. Yeah. And, you know, and I think of it very similarly when it comes to language experiences in that, sure, yeah, you could write every single word and design every single phrase that the bot could say. Um, but now we are evolving into a phase where we can truly target what is the interaction trying to achieve? What are the relationships we are trying to engender that we are trying to build between the user and another user or between the user and a system or the system and a user or group of users? That is a much more complex task than, than determining whether or not all right should be one word or two. Yeah, totally. It becomes you know highly highly conceptual. You know, using your calculus example, it makes me think of mathematicians who are dealing with the really hard stuff, and they become very kind of conceptual, philosophical because it's like imaginary yes. numbers. Yeah, exactly. And I think in this case, it's almost like you know imaginary language. We have an idea about what the model will produce, but we don't know exactly what it's going to produce, and we can constrain the probability of what is being produced through prompt design, but that's only because we know of the sort of infinite possibilities, seemingly infinite possibilities of what could be used in this particular situation, which ones are more and less appropriate than others. Yeah. And I think that that deep background in understanding human behavior as it pertains to language, particularly as it pertains to things like conversation, that's really our superpower and it always has been. Yeah. And if anything, I think that thanks to large language models, we can now show off and really flex that superpower and say, this is why you hired us. Not to necessarily, um, you know, overly fixate on the minutia of exactly what the bot is going to say, but to, like you said, orchestrate and direct the bot. Um, another metaphor I use for large language models is um, like actors and directors in a stage play. Mm -hmm. You know, the large language model, it's like the difference of being on stage versus moving behind the camera, so to speak. Yeah. 
you know, you're not the one who is executing the scene. You have to communicate to this thing how the scene should be constructed and how to execute. And if you don't tell it to come in stage left, it will come in stage right. It's going to take a crack at how to solve this task that you've given it, given the scope you've given it. And if the scope you've given it is the, you know, whole world, well, then sure, it will take the whole world into account and, you know, do something. And I think for business and enterprise use cases, we don't necessarily want it to take in the whole world. We want it to take in to account the business context and -hmm. what would be appropriate in an enterprise context for what's needed here. Yeah. Cool. This is amazing stuff, Greg. It's it's always so nice to talk to you. It's like your insights are really wonderful. Um, so here's one that's either a hard or a simple question, depending mm-hmm. on your perspective. But I feel okay. very excited to ask you. Um, okay, great. And thanks so much. I know you've got a cold. Um, are we okay? Like to continue? Uh, yes, or, I just. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for asking that right there because the sneeze was coming and that was perfect timing. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how I'm going to squeeze this in. So thank you. That was perfect. <laughs> no worries. I'm, I'm glad that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you got to have a sneeze because everybody loves a good sneeze. Yeah. <laughs> so, Greg, would you say that conversation design is now in a new phase when we're talking about generative AI within conversation design? I would, um, mostly because the, I think we can kind of distinguish there's sort of, I, I think what's emerging is this perception of pre and post LLM conversation design. Pre LLM conversation design really, again, was very manual. You know, we had to train intense, you know, utterance by utterance, as opposed to now we could potentially use something like React. You know, if we were going to create something that the model is going to, or sorry, create something that a bot is going to say to a user, we would have to literally create those words, as opposed to now we can use, you know, GPT or Cohere or Anthropic or, you know, pick your provider. And so I think that, again, that skill shift from having to, you know, sort of, spend a lot of cognitive energy and a considerable amount of time on these very manual things to now being able to shift that energy and that time to thinking through the interaction design and thinking through what are our interactional goals. For me, as a, as a linguist, that is the most exciting thing about this sort of new age of conversation design is that now we really can focus on interaction design. And I kind of compare it to... I mean, it's similar, I think, on the graphical side of things to when we had tools like um, Sketch or, or and having a design system or design library that you could pull from where you don't have to create a line from scratch every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to position those graphical elements in a way to then move faster so you can focus more on the interaction design piece of, of your world. Um, it's not exactly the same because, you know, Sketch wasn't generating things for you. Um, and now I think even UX and graphical design, you know, graphical interfaces are moving into a similar phase where, you know, they don't necessarily even have to pull from a Figma kit. You can just tell it to generate this thing based on the graphical elements. Um, and so I think for not just for conversation design, but all of design as a practice, I think that we've moved into this new phase where we can operate at a higher level of abstraction. And that's actually to the benefit 
of the experience, not seen as, you know, this sort of esoteric exercise, but really we can provide material value based on what we know about interaction design in the final experience. Yeah, it's great. It's great. It's so exciting. I think, yes. you know, but that's the thing. We can be super excited because like what I'm feeling myself, and I don't know if you agree with this, but it's like mm-hmm. suddenly we have this new tool to use. And mm-hmm. it's not just that it's like, hey, we have this tool, we know what it does, and we can try and do all of this stuff. But mm-hmm. we're actually saying, what is this tool? Like, yes. what, are, what are the risks? What are the benefits? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we can definitely be super excited about the potential benefits, but there are risks, right? There's, right. you know, it hallucinates or uh, hallucinates, so to speak, or it yeah. might share harmful content in in what is pretty much always the wrong context. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, for some lines of work, that might be useful. For a business, talking <laughs> with a client, you don't want to right. be sharing something horrible or disgusting or, right. or whatever. Um, yeah. how, how do you deal with that? How do you put in those safeguards that says, like, that's outside the scope, don't go there? Yes. I mean, I think a lot of it is what you just said, defining the scope and saying, do not go there. Um, very luckily at Salesforce, we have an office of ethical and humane use, and they have taken a very central role in the development and integration of large language models into Salesforce's product portfolio. Okay. And so I think that this, if anything, the thing that I am probably the proudest of and the most excited about what we've done so far at Salesforce is the Office of Ethical and Humane Use, Engineering and Conversation Design, we really locked arms okay. and thought through the system architecture in a way to account for exactly these things. My perspective on this, especially in the beginning when we when it became very clear, okay, we're going to go full steam ahead with this as an organization, is I went straight to engineering and said, anything that you do in the architecture is going to directly constrain what my team can make happen in the experience. Mm-hmm. So I need... I need to be right there with you. We're going to be best friends. <laughs> anything that, you know, any decision that you make, I need to have an understanding of why we're making it and how, like, could we potentially do something else architecturally to solve for whatever problem you're trying to solve for without potentially overly restricting the language experience. Yeah. And so I think for probably the first time in my career, I've spent the most time working with engineering and performing architectural design which is really cool because I'm like, okay, no one's ever going to see this. But I know that under the hood, that engine works that way and moves to this thing because of something that I collaborated on with engineering and office, the Office of Ethical Human Use. And yeah. so it was really important, at least from my perspective, I think the thing that I'm really appreciative of the Ethical and Humane Use team is that they think through a lot of the frameworks about how we can manage data and privacy and... Um, uh, toxicity, all of these things that introduce risk and potential harm to the experience and work very closely with engineering to ensure that we don't j- just have the system infrastructure for it, but also these social tools to help enforce and catch anything that the system doesn't essentially catch itself, mm-hmm. which left me the I think the room to be able to focus completely on the infrastructure and say, okay, all right, so you y'all have the social piece. What teams are we going to use? You've said what we need architecturally. Now I'm gonna go work with this team and help them actually think through 
the way it should be designed architecturally and how to build it and make sure that we have certain checkpoints throughout the architecture itself. So that way, by the time anything actually does go to a set of humans who are doing any kind of content moderation or any additional um, programs that have been put in place by ethics, that we've done our due diligence and our best shot on the architectural side to make sure that whatever is being handed over to them is like the most rigorously systematically analyzed that we can make it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a masterstroke that you at that time saw what needed to be done and go and do this, like go and speak to that team and say, we need to lock arms and work together. I wonder, Mm -hmm. is this an ongoing collaboration? Like how much, yeah, so it iterates. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yes, especially because as, I mean, and you, I think, you know, we've all seen this, like, um, you know, on the internet, for example, Dan prompts, injection attacks. People are always looking for different ways to jailbreak this thing. Um, and I don't find that to be particularly nefarious. I think actually a lot of that really starts from a place of play. Mm-hmm. Humans are naturally curious. And so if there's a tool, they want to figure out how to, you know, how it works and, and thereby one of the best ways you can figure out how to, how it works is to break it. Um, and so I think there's a lot of that sort of human ingenuity that's motivating those things. Um, but what that does mean is that there's a lot of risk when you, when you try to break this tool and get it to do something that it wasn't designed to do. Um, and so as those, you know, those, as, those users continue to evolve in their practice of trying to invoke things like Dan prompts or insert um, injection attacks. We also have to stay at the forefront of making sure that our system architecture and our prompts and prompt designs scale to that. Um, And that uh, we're able to, like I had mentioned earlier about prompt drift and therefore prompt tuning in the same way that we need to tune our prompts, we will likely need to, you know, potentially revisit parts of the architecture to make sure that we have in place what's needed to protect our customers and our users and um, maintain our number one value of trust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's one of the massive risks here is that the more people try and break it and teach it to be naughty, in very general terms, the more it yeah. might learn that, well, that's what humans want and that's what humans do. And that's how I'm going to be, you know? Yeah. So. Well, and I, I have, you know, I have faith in the, the, you know, the model providers in also trying to constrain that. I think OpenAI, you know, for example, does a really great job of staying up to date with those things and then revising the model in such a way that accounts for that. Yeah. Um, and so if anything, I think of it as like, you know, whatever provider and their content moderation and their model management tools that they use, um, in addition to what we have on the Salesforce side, hopefully, you know, I, I, I would consider that to be as safe as we can make it. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So I've got just two more for you because I know that you're, you're struggling a bit with the cold and you've given <laughs> me so much great stuff, Greg. Um, so hopefully these are... Bit, bit lighter, bit easier for you. I would just love to know because you know, as you say, uh, you've been doing this, uh, like working so closely with generative AI for at least a year. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's been a huge project. Like, how do you stay up to date with it? How do you uh, ensure that you know what's going on in the field? Mm-hmm. I think definitely social media. So mm-hmm. Twitter, LinkedIn, Reddit. 
um, LinkedIn mostly for what I'm seeing in terms of potential academic papers or innovation from other organizations, um, keeping up with the competitive landscape of what's being offered um, on the market. Yeah. Twitter and Reddit more for the Dan prompts, injection attacks of people who are trying to break things yeah. um, and to get a sense of them like, okay, what are you trying to do? And how do I make sure that we're ready for it? Yeah. Um, I think between those three sources, that's the main way I kind of keep abreast of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and talking to folks like you and, and other, other folks in the industry and getting a sense of, okay, well, so what are you working on and what are the challenges that you're experiencing? Yeah, cool, cool. It's it's funny, the more you talk about these people trying to break break it, I mean, it's totally valid because it is kind mm-hmm. of like impolite usability testing that people probably wouldn't do if you're either paying sure. them or, you know, on a call with them, like saying, so what would you do? And they're going to be like, well, I, I would do this. I would think carefully. And of course, I would be polite. And it's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> right. And even I think like for examples of toxicity, you know, um, toxicity from you know my understanding of through working with the ethics team has a very actually specific definition in that world and so you may be able to say mean things you know and create these you know annoying injection of prompts or whatever but it's not actual toxicity and so getting the thing that i've learned from the ethics team is that you know if there's getting people to produce actually toxic things it's kind of hard mm-hmm. um because it Generally, I think most people who we interact with in professional settings don't use those kinds of toxic things. Um, And so if you say, okay, say something racist, it's really anxiety provoking, you know? Um, (laughs) And that I think makes it, if anything, like looking at, you know, Twitter or Reddit um, and really being able to comb the web in that regard to find out, okay, so there's someone over here who's saying something toxic because they don't have to own up to it with their face. Yes. Let's train. <laughs> Let's figure out, can we handle this? You know? Yeah. yeah. And there's a widespread data sets out there also for, for the capture toxicity that we also use. Um, but again, I defer to the ethics team on that. Yeah. Cool. I mean, I imagine they have a lot of work to do in that area to, yes. yeah, to catch this stuff. Yeah. Oh, grateful for them. Sure. Sure. And so last question, Greg, when yeah. can people catch you speaking next at a conference or <laughs> online or somewhere? Um, that's a great question. Um, I think that right now there's just so much that's in flux. I, I hesitate to commit to anything in particular. Okay. Um, but stay tuned. I think <laughs> that the, the part of me that the part of me that appreciates pop music and pop music marketing is the the art of the surprise. So keep your eyes peeled, um, and you might see me this summer. Excellent, and I think we need more surprises. We've got so much information, <laughs> you know, so much. We're all analyzing and aware of so much. Surprises are wonderful. Um, oh, great. So, but if people want to be surprised by you, they at least need to be able to follow you. And be surprised. Yes. So where can they where can they follow you? LinkedIn and Twitter. So on LinkedIn, uh, you can find me there, Greg Bennett, and then on Twitter, uh, GA Bennett forty five. Excellent. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Greg. It's been wonderful thanks, talking ben. to you. Like Likewise. Always. Yeah. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you.